0: Well, please turn your Bibles to Genesis 28 with me. Genesis 28 as we continue to look at the life of of Jacob. We've encountered Jacob uh, two weeks ago as we looked at him and uh, his conflict with, with Esau, and that continues this morning as we continue to look at how God is gracious to this family, this imperfect family, and God continues to be gracious to them and continues to work on them as they become part of of his covenant people. And if you would, if you're able to, stand with me as we read this text together. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10, as Jacob has has fleed Esau and begins to make his way toward Haran where his his, uh, mother's family is to find a wife. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, "'I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie.'" Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If... God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading, the study, the application of his word together this morning. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the time of worship we've enjoyed already this morning. And, and uh, Lord, we thank you for the way in which you bring us into relationship with one another through faith in your Son Jesus as well. And Lord, as we look at this passage and think about your salvation of us and, and our faith in you and all these things, we pray that you'd give us wisdom. We we pray that our faith would be strengthened as a result of trusting in you and uh, that your the the strengthened faith would in so many areas of our life uh, encourage us we pray that it would encourage us in our relationships with uh, difficult people people that we're difficult with or that are difficult in in their relationships with us we pray that it would encourage us as we those of us who are parents as we parent as we are married if we're married as we pursue holiness and in, in whatever situation we're in and we, we pray that that our faith in you would strengthen us to to do the things you've called us to do, especially for those of us who are maybe walking some some dark roads this morning, Uh, and we pray that you would be especially gracious to to those, and we ask all this uh, for your glory, in the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. One of the questions that I get asked every so often, was asked a lot whenever we began our church plant uh, some seven and a half years ago or so, was, why don't... We do altar calls or invitations at the end of the service. Why don't we ask people to, to come forward and, and pray with them or to have them place their faith in Christ? and. Um, it's a good question, and many of you maybe come from church traditions where that's, that takes place on a on a weekly basis, or at least somewhat of a regular basis, and maybe even some of you would say, boy, God really used an altar call in my life. It was a, a pivotal event, a moment in my life, and, and God was very gracious and used that in my life, and, and I would say that's, that is fantastic, and I wouldn't uh, want to start a fight with anyone this morning about altar calls and when to use them and when not, but I, I would just say... Uh, personally, we haven't. I haven't used them in, in my ministry and, and for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is just practical. I am really bad at altar calls. I mean, really bad. It is not my gifting. I mean, to, to do an effective altar call, you kind of have to be willing to really sell it. And uh, you've got to stare down the congregation and not blink. And, uh, you know, I'm going to play this song, and I'm, I'll wait. I'll do it. And I, I blink. I mean, I blink. Like someone with contact problems in a dust storm. I mean I, I cave. All right. and never mind, that's it's good. We'll just wrap this thing up. And so I did a couple in my early in my ministry and something like that. And, and just boy, I'm I am not good at it. I it terrifies me, you know. But that's not really a reason to or not do them. But um also just um there's also some other aspects that made me uncomfortable. And I, I don't know if I'd use the word moral problem, ethical, it's, it's just made me a little uncomfortable. Sometimes, as some people have used them, they they seem somewhat manipulative, or uh, even sometimes—and again, this isn't all—but sometimes deceptive. I was at a service one time, and the speaker was you know, encouraging everyone to. At the end of this mes- message, he said, "Okay, everyone, close your eyes and bow your heads." And so everyone did that. He said, "Okay, now if, if you want to have a deeper relationship with God, just just right now, just you tell him that in the, the quietness of your heart." Okay, and so. People did that. He goes, okay, now, if, if you did that, again, heads down, eyes closed. Now, if you did that, raise your hand. And so, okay, and people would raise. well, I did that. So I'm gonna raise my, now, if your hand is raised and you really meant it, you need to come forward to, to show God that you're not just kidding around. About, man, that seems really deceptive. You took a person from praying something quietly to God, now putting the pressure on them. If you don't come forward now, you didn't really mean it. It just ugh, made me a little uncomfortable. And maybe you've seen that as well. But probably the... The primary and I think the most important reason that I've been hesitant uh, to employ invitations and altar calls on a regular basis and and to make that a part of a worship service is is I think it can distort the gospel somewhat, or at least it can, can be a distraction from the gospel message. The gospel message says that a person is to repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvations. That, that's what a person is to do. And, and that's, that's the terminology Scripture uses, repent, believe. Those are biblical terms. And sometimes whenever you have an invitation or an altar call, things kind of get a little fuzzy as to what a person is doing and why they're doing it. Ian Murray wrote a great little pamphlet on the, the invitation system and some of his concerns, and he talks about this. He says, the words believe and repent are replaced by other terms like give your life to Jesus or open your heart to Christ or do it now or surrender completely or decide for Christ and other li- other similar language and then there's there's movement of the body that's kind of associated with doing those things and so a person might say look if you want to become a Christian why don't you come down the aisle now and and what eventually happens and this is this is kind of what I'm getting at is that people get a little bit confused as to what exactly is it what exactly is the message that I'm responding to? Instead of understanding that salvation is this act of God by which he grants repentance and faith in his son Jesus, people think, well, I guess becoming a Christian means having some warm feelings toward God and manifesting those warm feelings with some sort of action that I do, like raising my hand or walking an aisle or bowing my knees. And again, I think that people can legitimately be saved through through an altar call, things like that. Maybe that would be some of your testimonies, but I think it it muddies the waters a little bit. It takes what is a God-centered message, the message of salvation, and it makes it more man-centered. This is what I'm going to do. This is a decision that I'm going to make, and so I think we need to be careful. Now, when we come to a story like this story here about Jacob, this, this, is, this is what I'm talking about. This is why it's so important to get the gospel message very, very clear. When we come to the story of Jacob, we're talking about a guy who's a con man, who's a little bit of a, a scoundrel, who is deceptive and, and dishonest. And the question we have as we come to Genesis 28 and, and encounter Jacob is, how does a guy like this become a part of God's covenant people? How in the world can this guy be become part of the, the covenant promises of God? How can he enter into relationship with God? And I would just say this, it has to be a divine act of God to bring a guy like Jacob into his covenant people. There is not an aisle long enough for a guy like Jacob to walk down on his own volition to get into right relationship with God there's nothing inherent in, in Jacob by which he could by which a person can say well that that's what a person could use or or could could draw upon to come into relationship with God no salvation in Jacob's life must be a divine act God divinely must act in Jacob's life to bring him into relationship with him and the same is true for you and me and sometimes as we've twisted, not intentionally, but kind of distorted the clarity of the gospel message, it's caused us to to not see salvation as an act of God, but to make salvation a more man-centered decision. And I think there are some tremendous consequences to that distortion. And what I hope this morning that we see is, I hope we see this. I hope we see that God is gloriously sovereign over all aspects of his salvation of us. That God is is gloriously sovereign over all aspects of his salvation of us. That that God is the perfect God for those of us who struggle with an imperfect faith. And as we look at this, I I hope a couple practical things happen as you think about that truth, that God is a sovereign God over all aspects of his salvation. First of all, I hope it helps you as you continue to walk with God. You see, if I came into a relationship with God simply because I decided to and I'm, I, in and of myself, pointing to something in myself and say, okay, this is what I'm going to use. I'm going to place my faith in Jesus. I'm making this decision on my own. If if that's what happened, if I entered into a relationship with God in that manner, then that means I need to continue in a relationship with God in that manner. But if it was God in His sovereignty who gave me this this heart that that allowed me to place my faith and trust in His Son, Jesus, if God was sovereign over even that, then what does that mean? That means that as I continue to walk with God, He continues to be the one who is sovereign over my continual salvation as I continue to walk with God. It's not dependent upon me and my work and my effort, but upon God. It also practically, this this truth also practically affects me as I interact with others. If there was something in me that caused me to respond to the gospel and you didn't have that special thing, then it can create some, some arrogance on my part, right? I made the decision. I walked the aisle. I raised my hand. You didn't. There's something better about me than you. But if God was sovereign over this process, then it affects how I view you. It affects me in terms of how I view my children. It protects me from unfair standards and, and legalistic requirements. And, and kids, you can thank me later for this message, you know? Hopefully his mom and dad and, and all of us think rightly about how to view each other. God is gloriously sovereign over every aspect of salvation of us. He's the perfect God for those of us who struggle with an imperfect faith. And we're going to see that as we look at this message this morning. And, and I want us to look at three things. Three things that I think will help us grasp a biblical view of the salvation that God brings about. Here's the first thing. Here's the first thing God provides the only way to approach an unapproachable God. God provides the only way to approach an unapproachable God. Look at the text with me, if you would, and remember what's happened. Jacob has left his family, and he's left Beersheba, and he's traveling to Haran towards his his mother's family. And as he's traveling, he's estranged from his family, especially estranged from his brother. He has uh, very little things to take with him. He is in a a tough situation. And as he says, verse 11, comes to a certain place and stayed there the night, uh, he stays there because the sun had set. In other words, it's not like Jacob said, okay, I'm going to uh, travel from Beersheba and I'm going to try to get so far and I'm going to arrive at, a, I'm arrive at this, this predetermined place and at that predetermined place I'm going to meet God because I've heard he's there. That, that's not what happens. Jacob begins to travel and he stops for the night. And the reason he stops for the night is not because he has some sort of premonition about what's going to take place there. He stops there for the night at that certain place simply because the sun's set. Nothing that Jacob does puts him in a position to receive this this message from God. If Jacob had been thinking, okay, how how can I approach heaven? How can I access God? There's nothing that he could have come up with that would have helped him do it. But what happens? He simply places himself down for the night. He grabs a stone from nearby and lays lays it down under his head as a place to sleep. And then we see in verse 12 what happens. It says he dreamed behold there was a ladder or perhaps a better word to use there would be stairway there's a stairway set up on the earth and the top of it reached the heaven and Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on. In other words, there's this, there's this access to God that exists in the place where Jacob is and it's access that God has provided. There's the top of the stairway that's in heaven. The stairway reaches all the way down to the earth where Jacob is and as, as God and his sovereignty reaches out to Jacob, Jacob can see these angels descending and ascending up, this, up and down this stairway. God has provided the means by which Jacob can have access to him. All God here. The most fundamental question of human existence is, how can I obtain access to God? How can I transcend the physical world? And there is nothing that Jacob could have done to allow this to happen. It had to be God doing this, all God, nothing but God. Jacob is simply the recipient of this message. Whenever our kids were younger, uh, we read from this, this little devotional Bible called the Word and Song Bible. Bible. Every night we'd sit down with them and read the Word and Song Bible. And what it was, there'd be a couple of stories and then there'd be a song that, that went with the story right before it or, or several other stories. And so there'd be like the, the Noah story and then Arky Arky or something like that. And then, and then this story was in there. Jacob's, Jacob's Stairway to Heaven was, was in there. And I read the story and I expected the hymn to be uh, the 1971 classic of Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. Um, And it wasn't, by the way, I apologize, Uh, Mike really missed it this morning, right? I mean, usually he can really pick the songs, but I don't understand why, Stairway to Heaven was not one of the songs we sang this morning, but, you know, he does a good job most of the time, I don't know, Uh, I guess this way we both have jobs this week, so that's good, that's good. But when our kids were younger, we read that word and song by, and we came to that, to that story, and uh, the Led Zeppelin classic, Stairway to Heaven, was not the next song, but I'd sing it anyway, or at least the, the words that I knew uh, that made some sense to me. And uh, it didn't really help their understanding of the text, but we always laughed, right? And you know, some of you know the song. Uh, it starts off kind of that mellow song, that mellow tune. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. When she gets there, she knows if the stores are all closed. With a word, she can get what she came for. Ooh, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. And then you get to the end, and you return to that imagery of the stairway. Dear lady, can you hear the wind blow? And did you know your stairway lies on the whispering wind? In other words, there's no, no substance to the stairway. And then there's that that hard ending, and you know the kids would all laugh as I started to sing. You know, And as we wind on down the road, our shadow is taller than our soul. There walks a lady we all know who shines white light and wants to show how everything still turns to gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven you know do that that ending there and the kids you know we're all laughing totally not understanding the bible story any better but at least laughing about that right now robert plant the writer of that said well i don't know what the song means a lot. Of lyrics make no sense to me," he said, and so if he doesn't understand it, I certainly don't understand some of the things that he was trying to communicate. But as he talks about that stairway to heaven, he says that that imagery for him meant that this this woman was trying to to access joy, access happiness through through financial means, and she was finding that it, it didn't buy the satisfaction that she would hope it that she'd hoped it would. And despite uh, the fact that Led Zeppelin is not a group I would turn anyone to for theology, um, that's true, right? That's true. They're right. This financial pursuit of, of financial security is not a pathway to joy. Jacob has been constructing stairways for himself. And the stairways that he has been constructing for himself have not been effective in in reaching the ends that he desired. He understands vaguely this idea of the covenant, but he sees it in very physical terms, and we continue to see that in this story. He sees the covenant in very physical terms and and only in physical terms, and the means that he's using to try to reach the end of that stairway, the, the stairway that he's constructing himself, is not effective. And my question for you this morning would be twofold as we think about this truth that God provides the only way to approach an unapproachable God. My, my question would be twofold. First of all, do you know where your stairway is, is heading? Do, do you know the end of your stairway? Have you thought, okay, as I think about my life and the things that I'm passionate about and what I'm pursuing as I walk along the journey of life and to get excited about things and pursue things, what, what's at the end of that stairway? What are you pursuing Maybe it's it's financial success, maybe it's uh, status in the eyes of others, maybe it's something to do with your family, maybe it's something to do with school. What is it, as you think about the things that you're most passionate about, where does that stairway end? What's its termination point? That's an important question to ask yourself, and and Jacob, as he thinks about this stairway in his life, the, the end approach for him, the end of the stairway might, he think, be God and his covenant promises, and, and yet And yet he doesn't really understand what God has promised. So one question is, where does my stairway end? And then the second question is, who's built this stairway, right? Who put the stairway there? And even for those of us who would say, well, the end of my my stairway, my the person who I'm pursuing is God, oftentimes we've constructed for ourselves these stairways. And so we've created these legalistic stairways, or we've created stairways of self-righteousness or, or judgmentalism, or a, a stairway that is in complete contrast with what God has described as the way to approach him. And what we see as we see God approaching Jacob is there is only one place in which we find joy, and that is God. God is our source of joy, and there is only one way to approach God, and that is the means that God provides, and the means that God provides is himself. Jesus himself is this stairway to God. Jesus, in John chapter 1, as he's talking to Nathaniel would say, look, Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus himself is that stairway. He is the means of access to God. He is Jacob's stairway or Jacob's ladder or whatever else you want to call it. Jesus is the bridge to God and the only bridge to God. He is the only way to approach an unapproachable God. God is sovereign over salvation because he provides the only means by which we can have access to God. Here's the second thing I want us to see about God's salvation. God continues to work out his salvation in his people. God continues to work out his salvation in his people. We see this this stairway or this ladder, and it says, behold, the Lord stood above it. And that that phrase, stood above it, can also mean to, to stand next to. And so the idea here is that the Lord is near to Jacob, and he, he speaks to him. He says, look, uh, Jacob, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And so there's this this approach that God has to Jacob, and yet he's also showing Jacob that he's still distinct from him. In other words, he's not his God yet. He's the God of his grandfather and the God of his, his father, and, and he removes himself somewhat from Jacob. This is not jacob's god yet and god offers jacob this promise and we see this promise in verses 13 through 14 there's four things that i want you to notice and, and all these things are very similar to what god has said to abraham it's part of this abrahamic covenant he's including isaac and in including jacob in this covenant with abraham and notice these these four things beginning in, in verse 13 the first thing is land right Land, just like he promised Abraham. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. That's the first thing. The second thing is numerous offspring. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And then the third thing that God promises here is, is blessing. And what I want you to see here about this blessing is that there's a, a distinction. There's kind of a a expanding of Jacob's understanding of what the covenant is from what he understood earlier earlier he understood his relationship to the nations and to the other peoples of the earth and based upon what his father Isaac was saying he understood more of kind of this this we'd have this prominence and rule over the other nations and God helps him understand we're talking about not just prominence for the sake of of prominence but prominence for the sake of blessing he says here I'm going to make you a, a blessing. Your offspring, through your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Okay, and so this is right in line with what God has promised Abraham. It's right in line with what what he's promised Isaac. He's telling Jacob, hey, Jacob, you are part of this covenant. There's going to be land. There's going to be offspring. There's going to be blessing. Now, here's the fourth thing that I want you to see, though. And this is in verse 15. And this this isn't different than what God told Abraham, but... There's a a special emphasis, an individualized aspect of this promise to Jacob. Look at verse 15 with me. This is the fourth promise. Behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, what does this mean? This means that God is saying, Jacob, I'm going to be with you no matter where you go. There is no place that you will be able to flee from my presence. And whatever location you find yourself in, I'm going to be there with you. My presence is going to be with you in a special way. And the things that I have promised, it's not dependent upon you to figure out how to get them. I'm, I'm going to bring this about. I'm sovereign over this process. This is a very God-centered promise of salvation that God gives Jacob. And as we see God describing in the Pentateuch, preparing people to enter the promised land, we see there a picture of salvation. This imagery is referred to and returned to throughout scripture. The idea of, of returning to the promised land and living in the promised land is a picture of the salvation that God prepares for us. As we think about salvation, what we understand is that God prepares his people to receive it. Sometimes as we think about salvation, we think of salvation just very very narrowly. We think, okay, uh, I'm saved. I pray this prayer, I walk this aisle, I raise my hand, I do this this thing and so I get salvation and then that means I've got like this I've got like this card, this guaranteed card and I can live the next 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. However, 80 years, 90 years, however I want to live, I can Get saved, do this thing, do this, this thing, get the salvation, get the, t- the ticket, and then live my life, and then at the end, I cash in my ticket, I'm like, "Hey, God, sorry about the last 50 years, but <laughs> I got my ticket. That's what we think of when we think of salvation. Now, is it true that there is security for the believer? Is it true that we're secure in Christ? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. John chapter six. Jesus says, I've I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What does that tell us? It tells us that those who believe in Jesus are secure in Christ. Jesus is going to lose no one. John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus says in verse 27. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. There is security, but here's the thing. As scripture describes our salvation... It tells us something else about this moment between placing our faith in Christ and this moment in which we are received into eternity. It tells us that there's going to be this process of continual salvation, of God continuing to prepare us for heaven. And it tells us that that God has given us during this time this, this righteousness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what does that mean? That means if between this moment in which I make this decision to follow Christ, place my faith in Christ, whatever you want to call it, between that moment and my entrance into heaven, if there is no growth taking place, that tells me that something was wrong here, right? Here's what we also see in Scripture, that are passages of, of great warning. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Colossians chapter one, Paul writes that Jesus has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death to present us holy and blameless. In other words, why has he saved us? He's done it to, to do this in the future, to present us not as, uh, not as sinners, but through his righteousness, to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, that's conditional, if indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul's saying, look, if, if here you receive Christ's righteousness and there's, there's no growth in your life, that should be a cause of, of grave concern. Philippians 1.6 tells us this. this, this is a good summation of how God works. He says, I'm sure of this, I'm sure of this, that he who began... He who began a good work in you will continue it, will continue it, and will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's the correction I want us to see about God's salvation. This past week, we had a major emergency. Someone else talked to me about this this morning, a major crisis in our lives. The coffee maker broke. Uh, That is not a good situation to be in, right? And uh, we handled this crisis well. Uh, there was a relatively new coffee maker. And so Whitney took it, and the receipt to, to, to Walmart where we purchased it. And she said, okay, here's the deal. Here's the coffee maker. You know, we're shaking. Here's the coffee maker. Here's the receipt. Here's the warranty. Handle it, please. And they did, very graciously. They had to. They had to. We had the receipt. We had the warranty. They're stuck. Now, sometimes we think of our salvation like that. Hey, I got the the warranty. I I got the warranty, God. 40 years ago, 80 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, I prayed this prayer. I walked this aisle. I was at a crusade, and I bowed my knees. And yeah, nothing really has taken place over the last X number of years or months or minutes or days or hours or whatever, but I've got the receipt. You're stuck. Sorry. Contract. Your idea. Your idea. That's what we think of as salvation, some sort of contract we've trapped God into. But that's not a biblical understanding of salvation, right? What is salvation? Salvation is a covenant relationship. I hear God's word proclaimed and I hear this 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 truth that I'm a sinner, that I'm in rebellion to God, and I hear this offer of eternal life, that that Jesus Christ has has died for me, that he has risen from the dead, and I can have life in him, and all I must do is is place my trust in him. And so I, I do that. I repent of my sins and I trust in Jesus Christ. I, I place my faith in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. But as I, I do that, I'm not doing it because it's some sort of contract I'm signing. I haven't read a tract and you kind of read all the lines. Okay, I do this, do this, do this. I'm done. I got it. I got to you know, show the track in heaven. That's not how it works. It's this relationship, this covenant relationship that I'm entering with God. And as I do that, as I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I receive a new life. God transforms me, and I now am a, a new creature. And this relationship with God, this salvation that he offers, is, is far greater than, than just some, some future righteousness or just some some future heaven. It is right now God begins the process of changing me and shaping me, transforming me into the image of his son. Now, as we think about this, as we think about this truth that God continues to work out his salvation in his people, that that God is sovereign over this process, that God is with us, there's two points of application I want you to think about. The first is this, don't let me put it the other way. The first is this if this isn't true of you, if these things are missing, you say, boy, this, this does not describe me, I, I think I just, I think I just made some sort of, had some sort of warm feelings toward God. I don't think I've entered into a relationship with him. What should I do? My my encouragement to you would be to, to consider his promises and simply call on Christ. Call on Christ. Believe in Jesus, trust in him. Those are those are biblical words to describe what God wants you to do. You turn from sin and call on Jesus, trust in him, enter into a relationship with him. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 10, he's talking about the righteousness that's based on faith. He says, don't, don't try to say, well, who will ascend into heaven? In other words, build your own bridge to heaven and bring Christ down. Don't, don't, don't ask that question. Don't ask the question, well, who can ascend to the abyss? In other words, to, to bring Christ up from the dead and reach him that way. But what does the word say to you? It says that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, Jesus is close, the word of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then this this beautiful truth in verse 11, everyone who believes in him, the scripture says, will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Isn't that Beautiful bestowing his riches on all who call on him. God is sovereign over salvation, and all of us who call on him can receive the riches of eternal life. Not just some, as beautiful as this is, not just some future salvation, but a a salvation now. That's the riches of what he offers. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that's the first thing I want you to think about. If this is missing. If this, all you must do is call on Christ. Now here's, here's the second thing. It's related. Don't underestimate what God is promising you. As you think about God's offer of salvation, don't, don't underestimate all that it entails, all that God is bringing about. Here's what Paul would say in Romans 8 as he talks about the righteousness that we receive. He says, those who love God, we know this, that all who love God are For them, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, what does that mean? it means that God is sovereign over this this whole process, and we shouldn't underestimate what God is doing as he offers us salvation. He is not just offering us this this ticket to heaven someday in the future. What he's saying is, I am going to take you, and I'm going to transform you, and I am going to be with you. As he says to Jacob here, look, I'm going to be with you. You go here, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you back here. I'm going to bring about all that I've promised, and brothers and sisters, here's the deal. If you are a child of God, if you are his disciple, if you are his sheep, you are going to hear his voice, and God is going to bring about in your life all that he has promised you. Whatever hard things he takes you through in that process, he's going to do what it takes to bring about in your life what he's promised you. That's what he does for his children. That's what he does for his sheep. Here's the third thing. Here's the third thing I want you to think about as we try to think rightly about this the salvation that God provides us. God requires us to not just be aware of his covenant, but to be faithful participants in it. Verse 18 tells us how does Jacob respond. He takes the stone that he put under his head, he sets it up as a pillar, he pours oil on it. He calls the name of the place Bethel. Bethel means house of God. He's going to return to Bethel in chapter, chapter 35. and Then... He makes this vow. He says, if God's protective presence is with him, if God's divine provision is with him, and if God brings him back safely, if those things take place, God provides for him, is with him, if he provides for him, brings him back. If those three things take place, then he says, what am I going to do? Then you'll be my God. Then I'll be devoted to you. There'll be dedication. He offers this house stone will be God's house, and then he offers a tithe. Now, here's the question. Is Jacob saved? You read that, okay, is he saved? What just happened there? I don't know. I don't know. He's elect. He will be. Is he right there? I don't know. There's some good things that he does, right? I mean, I think it's good how he, the things that he vows are in response to what God has just said, and so Maybe there's a little bit of an imperfect faith here, and I don't know if it's saving faith yet or not. But but he, he promises good things. This is in response to what God has promised. It's not just he's not just demanding random things. The offering, nice touch, like that, good, right? But there's some things that make me uneasy too, right? Maybe these things make you uneasy too. The, the conditional nature, if you do this, like why not just you say you're my God? Okay, I got it. Thanks for the stairway. You're my God. Why doesn't he do that? I don't know. It's not an altar that he offers. Now in chapter thirty-five, when he comes back, he's gonna build an altar. I believe at that point he's saved. He's he's part of the covenant in, in terms of his faith as well. But he's elect, but I don't know if he's I don't know if he's received God's gift of salvation through faith yet and belief. Now, what I want us to see as we look at Jacob's response, it, it's not enough just to be around something, to be a part of it and receive the benefits. When I was in high school, I, uh, I worked at a cafeteria. I was, uh, uh, I was the drink boy. My job was to get drinks and place them up on the, the drink line. Uh, I had dreams, I had aspirations. I wanted to be something more in life than just a drink boy. I wanted to be eventually the meat man. I mean, that was, that was the highlight of the cafeteria line, the, the man who, who could cut all the, the, the roast beef and the turkey and the fried chicken and all that. I, I mean, I dreamed of that, but I wasn't there yet, you know. Start small, at dreams. One day my, my chance arrived, i have been there about a year, and, and the, the meat man went down. Uh, got sick during the day, and several hundred people also within the coming days probably, but he went down, you know. And I found out I did not have what it took to be the meat man. I did not know how to cut a turkey, I did not know how to cut the roast beef, and it was a disaster, and I got, uh, I got demoted to mop mop kid, you know. <laughs> Now I had been around the meat. I had smelled it. I had seen it. I tasted it occasionally. You know? But that didn't mean I, I knew what it, what it took to, to be a part of that, that cafeteria line. It's not enough to, to be a, a part of the church, to be around the church, to see people who are enjoying the covenant promises of God and, and see people who are in faith. It's not enough just to be around those things. God calls you and I to, to, to come to him, to, to understand this, this stairway, this bridge to him is only found in his son Jesus and for us personally to trust in him, to, to say, okay, this, is a, this salvation is the salvation that you have brought about and I'm, I'm placing my faith in you and as I do so, you are granting me the repentance and the faith to do this. Don't understand how that works out, but I'm, I'm trusting in you. This is about you and I'm trusting in you. That's what God requires of us. Now, here would be, here would be two points of of application for you as you think about this truth that God requires us not just to be aware of his covenant but be faithful participants in it it's not enough Jacob God is going to do some amazing things in Jacob's life Jacob is is not where he needs to be yet if he has faith it's it is really weak faith he's not where he needs to be God is going to continue to work in him because he's elect God is sovereign over Jacob's salvation here's the two points of application one Don't assume, don't assume you're in. Just because you've been in the church, just because you think biblical things sometimes, just because you have a Jesus bumper sticker or whatever it is, uh, just because you're voting Republican, I mean, whatever it is that you think Christians do, don't assume you're in, right? God calls you, God calls you to understand his gospel message, the good news of placing your faith in Jesus Christ, turning from your sins, placing your faith in Christ. God calls you to do that. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't called on him, don't assume that you're in. My second encouragement as we think about this truth is is this. um, Don't assume others are out. Don't assume others are out. Sometimes we can be incredibly ungracious toward one another. And here's the beautiful thing about God's salvation. In this story, God isn't done with Jacob yet. You encounter Jacob here in Genesis 28, and you think, man, this guy, I don't get this guy, man, this guy gets all these things, and he deceives his own father, he hurts his mother, he swindles his brother. I mean, this guy, this guy doesn't get the covenant promises of God at all. Doesn't he know the covenant promises are about this, this, this blessing that's also designed to, to bless the nations and all he is about himself. This guy, I don't even want to deal with this guy. This guy has no part of the covenant people of God. Man, be gracious. Because God is going to continue to bring Jacob through some very difficult things in order to bring him to a place where he is in right relationship with him. And you don't know what God, I don't know what God is doing in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So brothers and sisters, be gentle with one another. Be holy, yes. Pursue righteousness, absolutely. But handle one another tenderly, gently as we recognize that, that God is a gracious God who's, who's working this salvation thing according to a sovereign plan. And we don't know what his, what his work in other people's life is like. God foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies his people and that's the God whom you and I are called to place our faith in. God is gloriously sovereign over every aspect of his salvation of us. God is the perfect God for us in our imperfect faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are such a gracious God to us. We pray that we would exude that grace toward others. We, we pray that your, your salvation in our lives would continue to, to bring fruit, that you continue to draw us more and more to yourself, and that our, our whole hearts would be in full submission to your Son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.